Hello all and welcome to Conservation Realist. This episode is another monologue and I will be waxing poetic on the topic of bycatch. And bycatch is a topic that has really shaped my career in in very fundamental ways and I stubbornly can't let go of it even as my involvement in conservation has shifted away from being full-time even as I've grown disillusioned with mainstream conservation. Yes, I realize that makes me sound like a fringe conspiracy theorist when I call it the mainstream. Um, But even through all of that, I want to somehow figure out a way to make the the study and the mitigation of bycatch uh, more productive somehow. And when I say bycatch... I am referring to marine megafauna bycatch. So that is the accidental capture of large, charismatic, beautiful marine animals in fishing gear. So this includes marine mammals, marine turtles, seabirds, sharks, and rays. And most of my experience is with marine mammals, uh, somewhat with sea turtles, and I've only kind of tangentially touched upon reports of bycatch of uh, the rays and the sharks. Bycatch was really my gateway into the kind of research I do now. So I started off, you know, as, as someone studying the behavioral, behavioral ecology of animals, uh, mainly terrestrial animals, actually, and it was a grand old time. I loved spending the day in the forest following monkeys and just seeing what, what they got up to. But I, I knew that I really needed to conduct research that I felt was was more productive in terms of supporting, informing and supporting conservation of the animals I was studying. So my PhD advisor, Dr. Lisa Balance, who is just a fabulous example of, of a fantastic leader, and I'll be speaking about leadership in a future episode, she introduced me to the issue of marine megafauna bycatch. You know, she very insightfully thought, okay, this seems to kind of check all of Tara's boxes in terms of what she's looking for in a research topic. And so I found myself quite hooked or enmeshed. Yes, I'm, I'm playing quite liberally with the bycatch puns here. Um, I found myself very enmeshed or one could say captivated, eh, kind of, um, by, the, by the topic of bycatch. And speaking of puns, I initially kind of admonished myself to not use the word tangled or entanglement in this podcast title, in this episode title, because that is such a tired old pun that so many bycatch researchers have used. Uh, Certainly not me. Yeah, I have. I have used it. Uh, But then I decided to really lean into it. And so we have the title, Tangled in Entanglement. And it's just because it's, it's such a perfect word. Uh, tangled. And it doesn't refer only to the animal being tangled in fishing gear. It also refers to the remarkably intricately complicated web in which this bycatch problem occurs. So in in speaking about bycatch, I also want to address at slightly more length than I have in previous episodes, the idea of systems thinking. And I I will have a newsletter out soon on this, uh, hopefully with some illustrative figures um, and and some 
guidelines as to how to use this approach when looking at any complex situation. And it involves a, a highly technical um, skill that I refer to as doodling. Yes, I do believe that just doodles can do a lot to help conservation. But yes, please keep your, your eyes out for that. But um, my goodness, I've distracted myself with my own tangent. Yes, so systems thinking. This is the idea that we kind of try to map out what's happening in the context of a given topic that we're studying, right? So you could imagine, all right, you have this interaction between fishing gear and an animal or animals. Um, what was that fishing boat fishing for in the first place? Why was there an overlap between the fishing boat and the animals? You know, you can think about, okay, what are the characteristics of the gear that made it perhaps more likely that the animals would get caught in it in terms of the materials it's made of, where it's set, you know, how deep in the water it is, how long it's left in the water. But then we get into some of the more, um, the, the social side of things. So why are those, those, those fishers out fishing? You know, what, what are the needs that they need to fulfill through fishing? Is it just income? Is it food for subsistence? Is it a way of life? Is it their tradition? Are there just no other options for work? Um, who is creating the demand for that product that they're out there fishing? Um, who else benefits from, from them being out fishing? In many cases, there's women who do a lot of fish processing, and so they gain a livelihood from that. Um, there's uh, fish collectors, fish buyers, anyone who's involved in the market chain will, will benefit from, from that fishery, for example. Um, and then thinking, okay, what's going on with these fisheries? Are they sustainable? Are they thriving or are they struggling? Is there overfishing? Is there competition with industrial fisheries? And let me take a step back <clears throat> and clarify the, the um, type of fishery that I have expertise in and experience studying bycatching is small-scale fisheries. Industrial fisheries is, is a, a different situation altogether, and I'll touch on that in a little bit. But yes, I'm referring to small-scale fisheries. So these are relatively low-tech, um, smaller vessels, generally fishing closer to shore, um, in many cases run by smaller companies or even family enterprises, although that's not always the case. Maybe it is connected to a larger company. There's there's all sorts of variants that, that one can find. But yeah, um, there is going to be everything from just people fishing independently for their family needs up to fleets of small-scale boats that are contracted to a given company. One thing that can generally be said about a lot of small-scale fisheries in the world, particularly in the global south, is that they tend to be among the most marginalized communities. They are generally poor. There are often cycles of debt as they take out loans to pay for, for fishing gear or their boats or for fuel, for example. They are very sensitive to impacts from, from climate change, um, an example being extreme weather events. And they have limited access to fairly basic but very important services and facilities and infrastructure, such as education, healthcare, markets, etc. They're often not represented in decision-making processes at all. Not only are they vulnerable, they also don't have access in many cases to their rights 
to to um, kind of lobby and advocate and, and shape change uh, in their situation. They are often harmed by coastal development, by kind of external industrial concerns that have an impact on the environment, by privatization of natural resources, blue economy. I'm looking at you, and I have a lot more to say about that. Um, so we're looking at communities that are, are vulnerable, and they're not your typical you know, villain in a fern gully, I'm dating myself, or uh, avatar type movie, right? It's not just some some evil corporate overlord who wants to destroy rainforests for his own personal gain. Um, we're looking at this this very incidental, this very accidental interaction between fishing gears and animals that a lot of us happen to think are pretty neat. And um, unfortunately, the the people involved in that bycatch they're not meaning to do it. And they don't really have a whole lot of options for changing what they're doing. And they don't have a lot of access to platforms where they can be an active part in contributing to and, and shaping solutions to issues like bycatch. And unfortunately, this bycatch and small-scale fisheries is a major threat to marine megafauna around the world. It is the main threat for some of the most endangered marine mammals, for example, and uh, again, it's a really tough situation where in most cases there's, there's no obvious quote-unquote bad guy. Unfortunately, I think that the prevailing narrative in conservation for so long has been to reduce it to this kind of um, very oversimplified view of, oh, there's an animal that's endangered. Someone somewhere must be doing something bad and they must be doing something maliciously and they're the villains and we need to stop them. Uh, this is a much more nuanced situation where there are a lot of factors that are, again, all tangled together. So let's imagine, this is a, a, a really out there idea, that you decide to, to fix the problem by just saying, you know what, that kind of fishing you're doing that's catching those animals, you can't do it anymore. There you go. Problem solved. Dust the hands off. Call yourself a conservation hero. Take a bow. It doesn't work like that. And a, a comparable conservation approach is, is often described by the label as fences and fines. And also in a, a similar vein as the idea of fortress conservation. First of all, this kind of bycatch and small-scale fisheries that we're talking about, it, it often occurs in contexts where there are inadequate resources for that kind of blanket conservation enforcement, right? Um, there are inadequate resources for fisheries monitoring, you know, let alone uh, managing those fisheries. And when you're talking about restricting a kind of uh, fishing practice, that really is a fisheries management issue. Uh, although there is an overlap, of course, with conservation interests. But again, we're talking about inadequate resources to do this kind of enforcement, let alone the fact that this kind of enforcement of such a ban raises some serious ethical questions, right? And I direct you to the previous episode with Doc Dome, where we talk about human collateral damage of conservation. So this, this approach, let's say, that 
you undertake it regardless of the many caveats I just mentioned. Um, Okay, what happens? Well, first of all, who's going to be impacted? It's going to be the fishers. They can't go out fishing the way they used to. So do you provide them with an alternative way of fishing? And is that going to be as productive for them? Are they going to earn the same amount of money? Are they going to have to work harder? Are they going to have to put themselves more at risk through, let's say, longer fishing trips, for example? If they shift fishing grounds, are they then going to run into conflict with people who are already fishing there? And what happens to everyone else in that market chain if they're fishing, if if the demand is now for a, a different fisheries product, okay, the people processing it might have to learn how to process it differently. There might be a completely different consumer base for it. So there, there are those kinds of things to consider. Um, and if there's no acceptable alternative given to the fishers, what happens to their families? You know, I, I've, I've studied the case of the vaquita in, in Mexico. It's a, the most endangered marine mammal in the world. It's a little porpoise. Um, it's very complicated. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll at some point post some of the conference presentations I've done on it. But in, in simple terms, what I found was that a, a ban on, on gill nets resulted in increased food insecurity. The, the local food bank said that they had a lot more demand for their food from fishing, from fishing families. Um, there, there are also reports of increases in depression and anxiety. And of course, there are many other things that could increase depression and anxiety in a community. But uh, for many people, their perspective was that this fishing ban really contributed to that. And these are people's lives. <laughs> these are real impacts. And so, you know, your, your, your quick and, and easy solution to bycatch turns out to not have been so quick and easy. It actually ended up being quite harmful. And so in, in developing this, this approach to, to fixing bycatch, <clears throat> conservationists, because yes, this is not just a, a, a hypothetical in the air example. This is, okay, a bit of an over, oversimplified version of what people have tried. Um, they're looking at the problem through a very narrow viewfinder, a very narrow lens. They're just looking at that immediate, that very proximate issue of animals are getting caught in this gear, so let's get this gear out of the water. Whereas in reality, they've kind of tugged on one line in this tangled web and ended up making a, a much bigger mess. You know, like when you're trying to untangle something and you accidentally pull something the wrong way, like a part of the string the wrong way, you end up with, with a more intractable knot. And that is what indeed happens in, in certain cases, I would say in many cases. And it's important to note that this this massive entangled web that we're working with it's not just you know social ecological drivers it's not just what's going on with the economics or the politics of it all there are also human interactions involved and issues of 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 conflict and, and history and trust and those are very complex right and so if you're intensifying the kind of conflict that communities perceive between their well-being and conservation you're really harming conservation long term because they're they're never again probably going to see conservation as being something that they want to engage in. 
And again, if you are, are operating in a situation where you don't have the capacity for perfect enforcement, you really need local people to be on board because they're the ones who are going to be needing to implement that conservation solution. So, you know, as mentioned in the previous episode, these end up being counterproductive conservation pathways. By not developing solutions from the start that include actively include community members and their concerns and considerations and also their their um, experience and expertise, you risk coming up with solutions that are far too narrow, that harm communities, that reduce their trust in conservation and, and reduce the likelihood that they'll collaborate, cooperate, uh, coordinate with conservation in the future. And you find yourself in a situation where enforcement or implementation of your conservation actions is, is just not going to happen. And so the animal that you're trying to protect ends up, I would say, even less protected, right? You've actually made the situation worse. And um, I don't know why I laughed there. It's, it's not funny. It's just kind of my, my reaction of distress is to, to laugh plaintively. So, you know, learning from these situations, learning from the various bycatch case studies that I've looked at, uh, I, I found that it was so instrumental for me to to literally doodle out what was going on. And, and this is a case where we're coming into a site with kind of a natural scientist viewpoint of, I have to have a hypothesis, and that will structure my entire train of inquiry here. It just doesn't fit at that kind of that this scope and, and scale and stage of, of inquiry. Um, Hypothesis-driven thinking is important. It does have a role. But where we're thinking about these really complex situations that kind of span different disciplinary concerns, you need to, you need to go in with a much more open mind and, and kind of observe what's going on, but have some system for organizing those observations, right? And for me, those, those are my, my, my trusty... Uh, boxes and arrows that I use to to map out different components of, of what might be happening and, and different considerations, be it as concrete as this animal has been caught by this type of fishing gear in this location, and this is fisheries for a given species that goes to XYZ city to be sold. That's a pretty concrete thing to document. And, and to things as abstract as you know, the history of conflict between different stakeholder types and how that might be influencing how they perceive each other and their willingness or lack thereof to work together in the present and in the future. At the risk of becoming fairly boring and assuming, presuming that I haven't been boring so far, I do want to go a little bit into how we even study bycatch to be, to, to start with, right? And so with industrial fisheries, um, at least those that fall within the management mandates of some kind of regulatory body, be that national or international, uh, in, in most cases, there would be requirements for an observer to be on board. And that observer documents various things that are going on with, with what that fishing boat does, including bycatch of, of um, species of, uh, what what's the word, species of special interest, uh, endangered, threatened, and protected species. Um, and so that's considered kind of the the gold standard of, of 
understanding how much bycatch is happening in, in fisheries. This is really not applicable to small-scale fisheries, right? In, in some cases, in most cases, maybe most is too strong. And in a certain portion of the cases, the boats are literally too small to accommodate an extra person on them, right? And small-scale fisheries compared to industrial fisheries, we're talking about a lot of small boats that are very dispersed. And if we're talking about, let's say, a relatively rare animal, the bycatch of that animal might be, again, a relatively rare occurrence in the fishery. Let's say you're, you're dealing with a very endangered population. But how are you going to have the, the coverage with observers you need? Like, how, how are you going to ensure that enough boats have that, that inconvenient extra person sitting in them to document bycatch on, on enough fishing trips to ensure that they are able to witness this relatively rare event? That's just impossible, right? Like it's, it's just not going to happen in that context. And so kind of the next best thing that's been landed upon is interview-based research. So we are literally asking fishermen about how much bycatch they are experiencing. And the, the numbers we're trying to get at here with, with this research is at, at the very core, we want to know how many animals of a given species or population are caught in the fishery per year. And that can be, you know, uh, a function of understanding how many animals are caught, let's say, per boat per year. And then if you know how many boats are operating in a more or less similar way with the same fishing gear, and you feel like you have sampled a representative sample of boats, so you've interviewed, I don't know, 10 boats out of a fleet of 100 and you feel like they're all more or less the same, and out of those 10 boats, um, you got reports of, oh, we've, we caught, let's say, I don't know, 10 animals or five animals in the past year out of those 10 boats. Okay, so that's 10% of the fleet. Then to extrapolate, you can say, okay, that five extrapolates to 50. This fishery is catching 50 animals per year. That's the idea, right? Um so you need to know how many animals are caught um, per year uh, in, in, the, in the sample of, of boats that you're talking to. You also need to know how many boats are going out. So what is the total effort that's happening, right? So, you know, through your interviews, you get an estimate of how many animals are caught per a given number of boats, and you multiply that times the total number of boats. Voila. Uh, unfortunately, it is never so simple. First of all, getting at the number of boats in a fleet, this is one way of measuring fishing effort. So it's basically how much fishing is happening. And, and the number of active boats in the fleet is a fairly imperfect measure, but it works. It's, it's relatively easy to collect. <clears throat> the problem is, um, even though it's relatively easy to collect, there's still a lot of uncertainty. Um, one would imagine that local fisheries offices would have a reliable record of the number of registered vessels. And some of them do, uh, but a lot of the vessels are not registered. And a lot of the offices I visited had wildly inaccurate numbers uh, for the number of registered vessels. Uh, it's, it's almost kind of a, an accepted, sad, plaintive laughing at truth among people studying small-scale fisheries is that these records uh, must be taken with a, a very large grain of salt. 
in in one case, uh, I was uh, on an island in the Philippines in one village, one barangay, and it was one of my first days conducting interviews. Um, and I had gone to the fisheries office and looked at the records and been like, oh, okay, there's like 82 boats in this barangay. But I'll double check with the barangay captain instead of in case anything's changed since the last time the fisheries office collected these records. And yeah, I meet with him like, oh, yeah, I understand that there are around 80 fishing boats using XYZ gear in this village, in this barangay. And he just started laughing at me. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. We have like 16. Uh, So (laughs) it turns out what had happened is that there had been an oil spill some years prior and that oil company had to reimburse uh, fishing families for the impact to the ecosystem. Fair enough. And uh, this is, I think, an extremely, you know, fair gaming of the system by which uh, families were registering their children as, as owning boats so they could collect more of the reimbursement. That's probably the most extreme example I've come across. But yeah, generally... Those numbers from the fisheries office are going to need to be ground truth. So, you know, we often ask people who are like the heads of fisher associations or just knowledgeable old salts in the communities, you know, like, okay, roughly how many, you know, what are the main gears used in this village? Roughly how many boats are using this gear? And we ask, you know, uh, several people this and kind of see what their numbers converge to in a sense. Uh, the tricky thing is many boats use multiple kinds of gears. Uh, different kinds of gears have different fishing seasons. Um, there's just a lot of complexity. Like even people using the same gears will will use them in somewhat different ways or in somewhat different places. It's really variable. It's maddeningly variable. Uh, whenever it comes to measuring fishing effort, I kind of internally groan. Um, so... Yeah, that's one of the most basic metrics we need to get at, and it's it's actually quite complex. Uh, and then there is the uncertainty in the information you're getting about the animals that are caught. And that is largely because bycatch of these animals is illegal. Uh, these charismatic marine megafauna species are protected in a lot of countries uh, by law. And so... Causing any harm to them, even if it's completely accidental, uh, puts one at risk for for fines, certainly, uh, possibly even jail time in some cases. And so why would anyone willingly share that information with you, especially if there's any concern that that information is going to get back to enforcement authorities? Now, in, in many cases, the enforcement authorities are not kind of sufficiently, hmm, what should I say, resourced? Uh, to to enforce such rules, but there is still that fear of, of being caught doing something illegal. So the assumption is that when you're interviewing people about bycatch, there's going to be under-reporting. So basically, what's told to you is just a, a portion of the actual bycatch that's happening. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that there's a lot of squishiness to this data. Every parameter we're measuring has a lot of squishiness to it. And it's kind of a tough situation because the decisions you want to make on this might affect people's livelihoods. At the same time, if you, if you don't 
you know, effectively protect the species or the population, you very well might lose them because, again, bycatch is a major threat, in many cases, the major threat to these species and populations. So it's just very, very tricky. I will say that getting reliable information on bycatch would be much more feasible if there was more um, kind of a, a context where fishers could share that information without fear of being penalized. So it, it would be really helpful, for example, if, if the, the local fisheries agency would agree to some kind of amnesty while, while research and, and efforts to mitigate bycatch are, are ongoing. Because as mentioned in the previous episode with Doc Jome, if you have that atmosphere of, of, of fear and strict enforcement, you're just going to push the problem underground. It's still going to happen. You're just not going to be able to study it. And um, let me have a, a vulnerable moment of candor with you. I am severely overwhelmed by, by work and, and other commitments in my life at the moment. And I'm not thinking the most clearly. And it's, it's actually quite late in the evening. And I'm very tired. I don't have a clear sense of how coherent this episode has been. And I, I hope that some some valuable insight has been shed on bycatch but i i want to share kind of a little vignette from my research on on the vaquita the the critically endangered porpoise in in mexico which is threatened by bycatch and i don't want to share too much here on that because i very well might uh, devote an entire episode or newsletter to it in the future there's a lot of things to learn from it but this really really touched my heart, really hurt my heart. We were interviewing this just lovely, lovely fisherman about the vaquita, the vaquita conservation process by which many community members felt they'd been harmed. And he brought out this, this folder that was just full of, of different papers. And he's so proud of this folder. And it was all the kind of certificates of participation to different workshops with different conservation groups and, and, and groups working on fisheries management. Like he was so proud and, and just so, so glad that he had been included in these opportunities to, to learn, to share his own expertise. And he was just so sad that he hadn't felt included there. He hadn't felt that there were opportunities for him to be more involved in, in the decisions shaping the vaquitas conservation or the, the alternative gears that were being proposed to the fishers. And I just, I felt first of all, personally, just sad for him. Like that's just really terrible that he had this interest and this passion and he was really into it. And it just, just, didn't have the opportunity to to exercise that in this case and it also just made me feel sad at like what a loss like what a lost opportunity right like i've been using the word right a lot i'm from southern california um but it was just a lost opportunity it was just sad on on so many levels and yeah i don't know i just wanted to share that here as just kind of a, a poignant reminder that these fishermen they're the experts right 
<laughs> they're the experts uh, on on how they fish and where they fish and what's happening there. And sure, there's some variation. Some of them don't pay much attention to what they're doing, or they're they're new fishers and, and they're not very mindful. But I'd say a lot of them are paying attention to what they're doing, and and they do notice what's happening, and they do care about their local environment. So. To undertake any kind of, of plan to mitigate bycatch without these experts at the table is just, uh, I think, a huge misstep as an understatement. I, I find the bycatch issue so instructive, albeit perhaps in a depressing way, for, for learning about how conservation functions and how conservation needs to change. And it's, it's an issue where kind of the, the normal, I would say, perhaps sometimes lazy platitudes about how to approach conservation just very clearly fall short. You know, saying, oh, we'll do ecotourism. Okay, well, what if the species that you're trying to save is actually quite shy of boats? <laughs> or what if there are so few of them left that it's, it's really not kind of going to be a reliable source of sightings for tourists? What if there's no infrastructure for tourism in the village? How do you ensure that the people who are able to make a living from tourism are the same ones who will lose their living from limitations on their fishing, for example? Then there's the, uh, we will educate the communities. Okay, that's fine. And, and I've definitely been to communities where they don't actually know a whole lot about, um, about the ecology or biology of, let's say, the dolphins. And they do seem to enjoy learning, but uh, informing a community without also ensuring that they somehow have power to do something with that information is not necessarily going to get you very far, especially if those educational um, activities are are fairly limited in in their duration and, and scope, right? Another classic is, okay, we'll just boycott products from that fishery. Again, it's just like, okay, fine, but what does that do? Like, who does that impact on the ground? Oh, it, it hurts the people who are already vulnerable and marginalized and don't have other alternatives. And uh, maybe they'll find another market for that, that fisheries product, and in which case your boycott's really doing nothing. It's actually kind of removing any lever you might have had as a consumer uh, from your involvement in that conservation issue. Now, I'm not saying not to boycott things. I know boycotts can be very effective, but I would like to urge a little bit more mindfulness when we are formulating uh, what this kind of boycott strategy will um, play out as. And there's a couple of examples from my main field site for my dissertation, which is Malampaya Sound in the Philippines, and I was looking at bycatch of Irrawaddy dolphins. And I'd gone into it very optimistic, thinking, you know what? Wouldn't it be fantastic if I could find that the gears that are catching the dolphins are also viewed negatively by the communities for other reasons? Like maybe they're seen as unsustainable. Maybe they are harming the fish stocks and then people using other fishing gears don't like, you know, these these bad gears. And and so we'll have community support for, for switching those fishers to alternative gears. And that was an absolute dream. Uh, totally didn't happen that way. Instead, what happened is one of the two main gears that, that catch the dolphins are the local crab pots. And these are, you know, little like straw traps, essentially, for crabs. 
And yes, when I first heard about them, I, I did initially think, how do the dolphins get stuck in those tiny traps? Uh, they get stuck in, they get caught in the lines connecting the traps as, as the traps are set at the, the bottom uh, uh, of the water. Um, I'm so glad I didn't ask that question very loudly and in front of a lot of people. <laughs> um, but yeah, those traps are made by local indigenous peoples who do make some income from selling those traps. Those traps are also used by some of the lower income fishers in the area. So one could say that the fishing gear we needed to get rid of to help the dolphins was also one on which some of the most marginalized people in that area relied upon. So there was no there was no easy win-win feel good fix that one could suggest in that case. On a similar note, I was told by a, a good friend who has many many more years of experience working uh, in that province and, and has been involved and, and also uh, knowledgeable of conservation efforts at Malampaya Sound said there was a gear buyback program at one point. So that's basically you want to stop people from fishing with a certain gear. You offer to give them money. If they bring in that gear, you're buying back their gear. Uh, the problem was that fishers were like, oh, I'll get money for bringing in this gear. So they kept making new gear and bringing it to sell and also continued using that gear. So that that didn't quite go as planned either. There was another little example from the Philippines with sea turtles and some, I think it was some local fisheries offices had kind of given an incentive for people to bring in any sea turtles that they'd accidentally caught I think so the sea turtles could be tagged and, and data could be collected on them. Uh, and that for their participation in this, you know, the, the fishers would be given something like a bag of rice. Um, so that's the opposite of making people feel scared of reporting their bycatch. Uh, the issue was, <laughs> according to some of the people I interviewed in the fisheries offices, uh, this might have incentivized particularly proactive fishers to... Uh, go out of their way to catch turtles and bring them in so that they could collect their, their rice reward. Another uh, solution that is used, and this is one that Doc Jome alluded to in the previous episode, the, the idea of compensation and you know providing financial support. You know We're stopping you from fishing a certain way, so here's a certain amount of financial support, and also here's some support in terms of like technical, other, other resources, uh, other capacity support to help you transition to a different livelihood. And these are all lovely things to promise. They are quite a bit more complex and involved to deliver on in an effective way. And in the case of the vaquita, for example, you know, the fishers were promised compensation. I was conducting my research, I think about a year after the, the gillnet ban had been implemented. There was this long line of people waiting to enter a basically an information session on how to claim their benefits, how to how to claim their compensation. It was a year out, and these folks still hadn't been given a clear pathway to getting their fair compensation that had been promised to them. Not all of these ideas are inherently faulty, uh, but they they really require really careful, thought out, coordinated implementation. And, and that's what's often missing. And I don't want to, you know, entirely blame conservationists for being careless. 
conservation operates in, in this kind of atmosphere of limited time, limited resources, of a funding structure that doesn't support that kind of long-term investment and, and development of relationships. And as, as Dr. Ruth Brennan mentioned in uh, episode seven, the, the messiness of, of the process of, of really working in, in a participatory way with communities. So the system is broken. Uh, I don't know. I, I feel like we really do need to examine in a fundamental way how conservation endeavors are supported and, and really create an enabling environment for these more well-thought-out, inclusive, collaborative, and, and effective processes. And I really don't have a sense of what I've covered in this episode so far. I think I'm going to have to start scripting these a little more. Uh, I appreciate your patience with me, but I do want to add here some kind of resounding final thoughts for the episode. So one reason I stay involved so much and so invested in, in bycatch of marine megafauna and small scale fisheries is that I'm not trying to toot my own horn here. I am one of the experts in this field. And that also speaks to uh, how, how the field is actually fairly limited, right? So um, I know that there are a lot of bright minds out there with possibly some innovative ideas that haven't been brought into thinking about the, the bycatch and small-scale fisheries issue. And so, I, again, I, I would love for bycatch to be more widely studied. I, I've, I have hope that there are many bright people out there who haven't thought about this yet, and maybe once they are um, brought into the issue a bit more, can offer a bit of, of perspective that's been maybe missing so far. And that does include fishers, and people in coastal communities. I also find that bycatch sort of, it's almost like it's a problem that takes pleasure in, in shooting down tropes about conservation solutions, as I mentioned earlier. I feel that most of the cases I've seen anyway, there's no way around the fact, there's no magical solution that gets you around the fact that you have to engage very deeply deeply and meaningfully um, and, in, and endure, as was mentioned in the episode with Dr. Ruth Brennan, endure kind of the messiness of the process of, of really collaborating with stakeholders, with communities. And uh, I think that, you know, this is such a powerful, even, what's the word, thought experiment for, for students or anyone working in conservation to work through. And uh, yeah, systems thinking, it's important, it's useful. I encourage you to, to learn more about it. And uh, I, again, I'll be offering some more information from how I happen to use it myself. My, my final point is kind of one of my, my favorite talking points is that there's this kind of bottleneck, I think, where we have a lot of people trying to get a grasp of the what I call the proximate details of the problem, how many animals are being caught in what fisheries and how. We don't have nearly as much effort going into the farther along in the process. How do we engage with communities in a, in a more effective way? How do we creatively work with communities and, and work in ways that 
kind of can benefit from their own creativity, their own ideas, their own expertise to develop solutions. How do we make conservation a more holistic and integrated process where people's well-being is is really part of what we're working for? Because I, I challenge anyone to, to think of, of any of these bycatch situations and come up with a situation where you don't need to think about those issues. Uh, and there are experts in the world on, on questions like that. There are plenty of people in the world who, who work on those kinds of interpersonal relationships on and on uh, organizational management, for example, or leadership development. Um, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that there's a lot of potential, um, a lot of approaches that haven't been tried yet. But I, I also recognize how daunting this issue is and how fundamentally conservation needs to change if it hopes to fix this problem in any meaningful way at all. So on that somewhat sobering note, I want to thank you for once again listening to me jabber on. In case I neglected to do this earlier, allow me to pester you briefly to like, share, subscribe, review, comment, and may I be so bold as to suggest donate if you have the means and the motivation. And I so appreciate you listening along or reading along or both. This really isn't as as polished of a product, this whole endeavor, as I would have liked uh, if I had, you know, a situation where I had no other demands on my time or energy. But, you know, I'm... As a recovering overachiever, I'm actually quite happy with this being good enough. I'm, I'm pleased that I'm able to get some ideas out there that I feel are important. I'm very pleased that people seem to be listening, and uh, I hope you continue to listen. All right, here is the beautiful song, The Green Touch, by Somo Twin, Zianta, and Min Min from Myanmar. And I hope you all take care, and you'll hear from me soon. ยาลาเฮจุกปาจีเยสิงโคดานวยนาสวนเลยลูดาโรอาลอมเปียวชวนสยาด้วยเปซวนเนตุเปียวนวยอาผิวเซลโลเลยเซยแลนเนลาปา